The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Our year-long series through the Gospel of Matthew after a couple, couple weeks out of series. I'm glad to pick it back up in Matthew chapter 24. And what we start here in Matthew 24 is uh, chapter 24 and 25 is the, fit, the fifth and final what, uh, what scholars call uh, one of the discourses in the book of Matthew. One of these five big sections of Jesus talking and teaching. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll see that these two chapters are filled with just red letters. Jesus is teaching um, regarding the kingdom and the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom that is here and yet to come. And so we're going to read just the first 14 verses in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of birth, the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Are you ready? Is this what you're hoping for today? Now, the content of the Bible has been described by many as like an ocean, just vast. You can look at it from a distance and enjoy it. You can just go up to where the waves break and kind of walk around in the ocean where it hits your ankles, or you can go deep into its vastness, into its beauty. It's beautiful and practical enough for children to understand its meaning and understand its essential meaning of God's Word, and yet vast enough for scholars to spend their entire life trying to figure out what it means. Some passages are like that deep abyss. Some passages are the ones where you look out at from a distance and say, that's for other people to understand. I'm going to stay here right on the beach where I, can, where I can just have fun and not get too wet. Well, this passage and all of chapter 24 and 25 are related to the topic of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the deep abyss, which can feel like that vastness of the ocean of God's word. And I want to set one thing out just on the table right before we start. There are, there are few passages in all of the Bible that bring up more disagreement among Christian scholars and Christians than the topic of Jesus' second return. And I have to admit, sadly, that we will not settle any scores today. I am not giving you a timeline. I will not give you any dates of Jesus coming back because I do not know, and neither do you. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. If Jesus didn't know, then you don't know either. However, however, why is this important? However, like all of Scripture and everything that God has said to us, seeking to understand 
what he has revealed to us will bring a flood of peace and joy and hope and grace to those who are willing to receive it and understand what he says. How does this passage, like this passage and the rest of 24 and 25, accomplish this? Because Jesus is coming back. These are realities. Jesus is coming back, and when he returns, he will reign over all of creation as, our, as the promised, eternal, forever, sovereign king. He will reign in truth and justice and, and love. And when, when Jesus returns, all sad things will come untrue. Everything that he has promised about the kingdom, everything uh, that was supposed to be in the garden of, of harmony between man and God and man and, and other people and man and creation, all this will be restored and all brokenness will be healed. And on that day, all those that belong to Jesus will experience the, the fullness of all that they were created for. Peace and love and, and laughter and the perfect combinations of emotions they will feel for the very first time. On that day, you and I, for the very first time, will feel the emotions as, we were meant to, as they were meant to be felt. The perfect arrangements of thoughts for the very first time, the perfect physical feelings in our broken and, and dying bodies will be felt for the very first time. The perfect conscience that is wiped clean of all memory of sin and shame and guilt will be gone. For the first time, we will think and feel and behave as we were meant to. For the first time, you and I will talk to brothers and sisters in the family of God, and no one will be misunderstood, and no one will be, have their feelings hurt for the very first time. What a great day that will be. So when will this happen? I don't know. <laughs> Remember, I just told you that. If you've forgotten already, I don't know. <laughs> but why talk about it? Because the end is coming where we are, it is true, we are one day closer today to Jesus' return than we were yesterday. How great is that? The end is near. It's a simple fact. Think about what Jesus said. The end is coming. The end is near. Just think of that statement of what I just said. The end is coming. Do you think that if you believe that statement, if you believe in the, the literal, the visible, the physical, personal future event, the historical event of Jesus coming back in bodily form, returning as king over all of creation to rule forever, that it means that you have to be that kind of person that stands on the street corner with the A-frame around their body that says the end is near. The end is coming. You're not allowed to shave for some reason. I don't know why you believe in, you know, every conspiracy theory out there, every war, every earthquake, every government overthrow is an immediate precursor to coming, the second coming of Christ. You have a police scanner, you know, at the dinner table and all through the night you're listening to and you're just holding on to everything that happens, every tribulation, every scare, every uprising. That's the day. The end is coming. Well, Jesus he brings up the second coming. He brings back his coming the way that he does, which he does a lot. If you think this is a topic that is not often talked about, it's talked about, he mentions it over 300 times in the New Testament. He refers to his second coming. That's, a, that's like one in every 13 verses in the New Testament is about his second coming. If someone were to recall all the words that you said this year and, and every 13th day you talked about something, that would probably be a very important thing for you. And so it is with Jesus. And he does this. He talks about it in the way that he does. It's never meant to get us to speculate. It's never meant us to become curious or to satisfy our curiosities about when and how and when that will be. But it's never meant to, give us, to make us hurry to leave this world and get on to the next. 
Here's Jesus' purpose for doing this. It is always meant to, to get you and I full of passion, full of hope, full of faith as we presently wait for his return. The whole purpose of Jesus talking like this and telling us about the future is not to take us out of the present, but for to teach us how to faithfully live in the present. And so that's how we will engage in this, how we talk about this passage and these topics, is that the purpose of this is for God to, to encourage us and exhort us, how do we live today in light of the reality that is to come? And so it's tremendously valuable. Even though it may feel like the abyss, I commend it to you. I commend the topic to you. I encourage you to study, to thoughtfully pursue God's Word, to thoughtfully pursue the wisdom of those who have insight on passages like these. And I want to handle this topic, which I think is in a safe way. I want to handle this topic the way that Jesus handles it. That's safe, right? We could do that. The way that Jesus handles this topic, that's how I want to handle this topic. I'm not going to handle this topic the way that I've studied this topic, where I've worked through a complex maze of studying you know, every apocalyptic theme and various interpretations of commentaries and listening to debates on this topic. And more questions came up for me than were answered. I don't desire to just regurgitate everything that I've learned about it, but I want to talk about this the way that Jesus does. There's so much debate in these chapters like this. I mean, does this text support premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism? And then you've got to think about the tribulation. Is it pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib? Or is there any trib at all? You okay? <laughs> the subjects are, are incredibly worthy of study because Jesus is coming back. And so I commend that study to you. But for today, I want to handle this topic the way that Jesus handles it. The main intention is to encourage and to prepare his disciples to think and to feel and to do and to discern faithfully, to be personally ready, to be hopeful, to persevere through difficulty. And first, let's see where it all started. It starts with this conversation, this discourse. Again, the final, the fifth and final long discourse in the book of Matthew that's recorded where Jesus talks a lot, teaches a lot. It starts with the disciples pointing out the beauty of the temple. They're walking along the temple courtyards and they're seeing the beautiful, magnificent buildings of the temple. And they say, Jesus, aren't these buildings magnificent? And he says, let me tell you about the end of the world. Verse three, 1 through 3 provides this backstory. The disciples assumed that the destruction of the temple and the end of the age would happen at the same time. The temple was destroyed. It would be so incredible to have something like this. It says in verse 2, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciple came to him and said, Tell us, when will these things be, and when will... What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And so the disciples saw this as this would be so devastating for the temple to fall. The temple being destroyed was so incredible, so unrealistic, so devastating in a sense that if it were to happen, it would surely feel like the end of the world. I remember first responders talking about the attack on the Twin Towers on 9-11. The firefighters that went in and they said not even exaggerating, they said it felt like the end of the world. It felt like the end of the world. Something so devastating, something so incredible, something so unrealistic that could not happen. Surely this is it, this is the end. Something so devastating like that to make them feel that way. That's what the temple was for these 
first century Jews, it was everything. Disciples saw it to be one event, but Jesus taught them to be two separate events, two separate times in history. The destruction of the temple, though, would symbolize a further, uh, a, a future judgment. It would symbolize a future end of the world and the end of the age. There would be local judgment. There would be local judgment, which came true in A.D. 70 within the generation of Jesus spoke. He said, this generation will not pass until they see these things. That Jerusalem would be destroyed and a temple would, be, would crumble. Jesus' prophecy regarding the temple comes true just as he said it would. And then there would be a future judgment on all of creation. And the disciples so much wanted to focus on the future. Jesus, tell us the details about how that will happen and when it will happen. But Jesus directs them towards the present, and so he does with us. He directs them to the present by encouraging them with three words, just as, just as, they, just as they were meant to encourage them, they're meant to encourage us. They're spoken, these two events are spoken so closely together because they have so many characteristics in common with one another. There will be false teachers, so don't be led astray. Don't be tricked. Maintain truth. Understand what the true gospel is and don't waver from it. There will be wars and, and earthquakes and international unrest, so don't be alarmed and don't be surprised and afraid about those things. Don't be, he says there will be persecutions. People will hate you and your life will be in danger and many will die, but endure till the end. And so these encouragements were the same then as they are for us now who are longing for and waiting for Jesus' return. And so first, don't be led astray. That's where we're going to go. Don't be led astray. Jesus begins immediately with this major theme. There will be people who seek to take the place of Christ, the, the role of Christ and the authority of Christ in your life. There will be people who want you to listen to them to find your ultimate hope and comfort. The, the disciples' preoccupation with the buildings of the temple could be the result of some kind of tourist you know, fascination. The temple was breathtaking for its time. Breathtaking for its time. The people, similarly, the way people would visit like the Taj Mahal or the White House or Buckingham Palace or, or the Grand Canyon or the Hoover Dam. I mean, you go to these places and what do you do? You look at it and you say, would you look at that? Look how magnificent it is. You take pictures and selfies. You, you capture these moments because you're in the presence of something incredibly beautiful. And the disciples look and say, would you look at this, Jesus? Would you look at how beautiful this is? Jesus turns away from the temple. He turns his back to the temple and he walks away from it. It surprises them. They're confused by it. Literally and figuratively, he turns from the temple as if to say, placing your hope in this temple is worthless. Placing your hope in the security of this magnificent thing is worthless. In the Old Testament, the prophets Micah and Jeremiah dared to make similar prophecies, saying that the, the temple, Solomon's temple, the greater, the greater temple, Solomon's temple would be destroyed that it wouldn't stand. And so when they rebuilt the temple, which is now this temple in Jesus' time, the one they're talking about, there was this apocalyptic belief that the temple that Jesus is talking about was indestructible. You see, David's temple, or Solomon's temple, was, was it was destroyed. But this temple now, even it will survive even the end of time. It was such a serious rebuke, it was such a serious claim for Jesus to make, that it would be brought up at his trial, it would be brought up at his crucifixion as the cause of his death and the accusations against him, because he said, this is going to fall, and it just couldn't happen. Why would Jesus be rebuking such an amazing 
structure? Why would he give his time to, to, to rebuke such an amazing structure dedicated to the glory of God? Because it was the starkest expression of his rejection of Jewish nationalism and all of those leaders whose power was focused on the temple and its rituals. It was focused on people who thought, this is what matters. This is what will save us. This is what is important to God, and that will bring us close to God. The physical world, the created world, can never provide the lasting rest that your and my soul desires. But the physical world, the created world, is, is beautiful. There's something that buzzes about it. There's something that, that entices us. There's something that satisfies us to a some serious degree in our hearts. When we are led astray, we are replacing this, this vertical love for God with a horizontal addiction for, for things in our life. We, we look to these things that have no ability at all to give us what God can only give us. And at best, these pleasures of these things and the pursuit of these pleasures of these worldly things, they, they're short-lived and they cause us to keep coming back to it over and over again like an addiction. It's similar language that's used here in this passage is used in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempts Eve, when he deceives her, when he leads her astray to seduce her with lies and half-truths. He deceived her. He led Eve astray to rebel against the truth, to rebel against the love of God and her sufficiency and dependency on God. He desired to lure her away from, from the supremacy of God's word in her life, to make her think that maybe... Maybe all of my comfort cannot be found in God and my Creator God. Maybe there's something beyond what God has given me that I ought to pursue. Maybe there's wisdom. Maybe there's power. Maybe there's a life out there that I'm being kept from that I need to pursue. The greatest lie of the devil is this, that we can find true comfort outside of the Creator God. And you may say, well, no one is coming to me. I, I don't understand how this applies to me. No one is coming. I've never had anyone in my life come up to me or in this generation and, and claim to be the Christ. I've never had anyone come to me and say, I am Christ, follow me. I would notice that. I would notice it as a lie, as a crazy person if they did that. But Jesus is talking in a way that this is something that we could all easily be confused by. It doesn't mean that people are coming claiming to be Christ literally, but desiring to usurp the place of Christ, the authority of Christ, as our supreme authority in our life. These false teachers manifest itself in, in different forms, in forms of any human solution, any human solution that claims to fix our greatest spiritual need, any set of rules or rituals that make us right with God, any social or political insights that claim to free us from our greatest struggles and our greatest burdens. We have no power, no power in ourselves to prepare us for the judgment that is to come from Christ. And His grace is our only hope. And Jesus is saying, don't let anyone come along that makes you feel explicitly or even implicitly that this is not true. That there is something, my grace and my righteousness plus something else that forgives your sins, that unites you to my love. Don't let anyone confuse you that there's anything that can offer you any kind of security and comfort other than my grace and my provision in your life. This is why Jesus had to come. The revealed scriptures, the beautiful temple, the, 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 the impeccable rituals, the more religion that was available to people, none of it was enough. We have one hope, one Savior, and it's Jesus. Sin causes us to want things 
that are horrible for us. It's something interesting about our hearts, about all of our hearts, that left to ourselves, left to our natural ability and our natural inclination, we will all choose things that are absolutely horrible for us. It's amazing how we do that time and time again. Has anyone ever said, I just don't like sugary, fatty foods? (laughs) Said no one ever. We have one hope, and it's Jesus. Sin causes us to become committed to our own plans and to say, this is what I want for our life. Sin causes us to put ourselves on the throne and to take Jesus off of the throne. Sin causes us to work for our salvation and say, God, what else can I do to make you like me? Sin causes us to establish our own control over our lives. One of the greatest temptations in time of trouble Maybe it's going on in your life right now where you are feeling just you're having a hard time, that life is not going the way that you desired it to go. The biggest temptation that you're feeling right now is to follow blindly anyone who is willing to offer you any thread of comfort. You're reaching out for it and saying, I just want some comfort. Who can give me comfort? And Jesus says, beware of any promises that are not rooted in my righteousness, my perfect righteousness for you. We see this politically, don't we? The goal of every politician seems to make you feel that the answer to your worst fears is to elect them. But our greatest needs are not political. They're not economic. They're not social. They're not even physical, but they're spiritual. And Jesus says, only I can do what you ultimately need. Beware of anyone who comes in offering you comfort, offering you promise to save you from the things that I've promised will come in your life. The hardships, the suffering, the the purging of your flesh, the process of making you more sanctified and more like me. And so he says, rest in this very good news. Celebrate it. Fix your hope on it. There's only one place where our worst fears are answered, and that's at the cross. There's only one place where all of our fears and all of our troubles are satisfied and met And it's at the cross of Christ where he pours out his life for us, for sinners. It's where he takes the place of sinners and gives us his righteousness through the instrument of our faith. And he goes on to encourage us in this by continuing to say, not only don't be led astray by this, but don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Don't be be surprised. There are certain things that must take place, Jesus says. We should not be alarmed by them. One aim of his teaching, it would seem, is to prevent this misunderstanding from the disciples and us that Jesus would come back immediately, that this would be something very quickly. He says that, that nations will rise against nations. There will be many earthquakes. There will be changes of generations. It will be a long time. A lot of this stuff will happen. It takes a, lot, lot, a long time for wars to, to happen. It takes a, lot, a long time to, to overthrow governments and to re, for regimes to change. Jesus has here a long view in mind. It's pretty scary to think about when you read a passage like this, isn't it? What will be the characteristics of the time between Jesus' resurrection and his first coming and the time of his second coming? I mean, nightmares. (laughs) How is he describing the time that you and I live in right now? Pretty much the scariest stuff possible. Wars and rumors of wars, he says in verse 6 and 7, the fear of impending conflict. Do you feel that? The fear of, are we going to go to war? Are there nations that are going to bomb us? Are we going to bomb somebody else? Are there earthquakes and famine? 
Is there international conflict? And he uses this metaphor of the birthing pains in, in verse 8. Well, all these events share the ultimate connection with the winding down of the present world. They are far from being immediate indicators that Jesus is returning soon. But he says it's, these, are, these are the beginning of birthing pains. Let me reverse. No, I'm going to change scripture here. They're the beginning of, of anti-epidural birthing pains. I don't know what that's like, but I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it, and it's worth, worse than an earthquake. And uh, <laughs> thank you, honey, for all that you've done. Uh, <clears throat> they share an ultimate connection that, yes, all of these things do indeed point to the winding down of, of our world but they are not an indication of immediate return of Jesus Christ. We have the advantage of something that, we have the advantage that disciples that were reading this for the first time don't have. We have the advantage of, of 2,000 years of history plus. Being able to witness what Jesus has said, being able to look at history, being able to look at the world and history and how it's unfolded and to match it up with what Jesus has said. We're able to observe history and see what's happened. The events really happened as Jesus said that they would. We have the ability to study great historians of the early church, of the first century, men, men like Eusebius that documented the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple and, the, and, and, and the things happening just as Jesus said that they would happen. We have the ability to study civilizations and know exactly what happened in those civilizations. We know, ex we know that in the last 3,500 years of documented history, that, that there have only been 268 years without war. So 90% of the last recorded history, there's been war. We know, we have that perspective where we're able to say, this wisdom is, is appropriate, it's happening, as Jesus has said. These, and, and nothing has happened quickly. But it's always been going on. We know that there's been earthquakes in the early church, even in the first century. We know that there's been devastating natural disasters like earthquakes and floods. We know from history that the first century was characterized by what we could only call labor pains and struggle and suffering. We know that the second century is, can only be characterized by what we would call labor pains. And the third century is characterized by labor pains. And the 20th century is labor pains. And the 21st century is labor pains. Guess what? If you want to make a prediction, what's the 22nd century going to be like? You guys are just conspiracy theorists. <laughs> labor pains. We're experiencing that now. What is, the, what is the lesson for us? We ought to resist the temptation to find ultimate comfort in this life here and now. And we can expect false teaching. We can expect persecution. We expect that the world will not favor the message of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to be alarmed by it. We don't need to be surprised by it. And yet, there is this utopian American dream, at least, in America, that it, that it shouldn't be this way. That Christians should be understood. That we should be free from suffering. That we should not be marginalized. That we should not be mistreated that our message is the right message and everyone needs to accommodate to that. That if we are marginalized and mistreated as Christians in a society, then we ought to fight against that and demand our rights to be heard. The gospel of the kingdom of God includes you and me, but you and I are not at the center of it. The glory of God and His purposes manifested 
in Jesus Christ being the forever king over all creation. That is at the center of it. When things don't go our way, the, the universal language of sinful hearts is complaint. It's amazing how natural it is to complain. And Christians should be far from characterized as complainers. We should not be alarmed, but we should realize that the normal Christian life between Jesus' resurrection and his return will, be, return will be filled with adversity. It'll be filled with difficulty, and it doesn't mean that God has given up on us. But endure till the end. And if, if, if in anything we see through history that God has chosen to use the marginalized church to bring about the most glorious advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God, then when the church is prominent politically or socially or economically, God uses the church when we are exiles in a, in a world that is not our own. He uses us when we cling to his hope in the midst of trials, not in spite of them. And so he says, endure till the end. Persevere knowing that these things are true. Jesus quickly tells us that the story is not all bad because two-thirds of it we've been kind of talking about, look at all the bad things that are going on. Is, you know, this isn't a story of you know, life is hard and then you die. So that's not the message. See, it's the cross now, but the crown is coming. That's what Jesus says. After listing eight negative things uh, from verses 4 to 12, he now lists very two positive things in verse 13 and 14. I want to read those again. 13 and 14, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, as much as these verses tell us to expect troubles, we find two comforting and encouraging promises. One is that those who endure will be saved. There's an expiration date to all our suffering. Salvation, not sorrow, gets the final word. There is, this is not a salvation by endurance. It's a salvation by faith. A faith that is characterized by perseverance and trust in God in the midst of hard times. A genuine faith that endures, that believes, that perseveres. That hopes in God who is in control. Revelation 1.9, I just want to show just this first part of this verse here. It's the introduction of the Apostle John who's writing the book of Revelation. And he's writing this letter and he introduces himself as this. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is how he's describing himself. What a great way to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. What a way to describe yourself. That the gospel commends us to be endurance runners, not sprinters. The gospel commends us to, to endure, to persevere, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And John is saying, he's writing his name, here is who I am. A partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Christ. My endurance, my hope, what keeps me courageous is, is not my own character, not my own record, not my own strength, but Christ. It is who he is, it is life living in me. It is his power that is made perfect in my weakness. The life of a Christian is not one that claims, I finally got to a point where I was able to see that all things are great in my life. 
but is able to see that Christ is king, that he is good, that he uses even our suffering to bring about his sovereign plans for your family, for your personal life, for your country, and for the whole world. And he will not give up. We're reminded that God's work in us is more like farming than it is like a microwave. But we want it to be like a microwave. We've talked about this when we went through the discourse of the parables, remember? We talked about how the kingdom of God is like a seed, that it grows. It's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, that when planted, it grows into a large tree, bigger than all the plants in the garden, and it creates a canopy of, 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 of where all the birds come and make their home in it, and it bears fruit, and it gives life. And Jesus says, this is what I'm doing in your heart. The gospel is growing in your life. It's growing in all of the world. We follow Jesus in the midst of brokenness, understanding that our brokenness and the brokenness of this world and understanding what Jesus is doing with you in the midst of it is foundational to your faith. Do you want to get a handle on your faith? Do you want to get a handle on the work of God in your life? Do you want to have joy in your life as you pursue him in this world? You need to understand that the gospel is working in the midst of brokenness in your own heart and brokenness in our own world. And you need to pursue the fullness of what God is doing in, in your life in the midst of that. That he's working on you, that he is loving you, that he's providing for you. And if you can understand that, if you can ask questions like, God, what are you meaning to do in my life through this trial? Then it'll be to you a flood of joy and peace in Christ. Your life is in the sovereign hands of another. That's what Jesus wants us to know. This means that there will be unexpected failures in situations and trials. You can be prepared. You can be prepared to encounter all of these things that you don't know are coming because you have a King Jesus who reminds us that, that nothing that we face is beyond his concern or his ability, and nothing is impossible for him. So we don't have to be in control. We don't have to be to, to, for our rights to be pursued. We don't have to have the final word. We can be harmed. We can suffer because of the second encouragement in verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world. Nothing will stop God's plan. Nothing will stop his perfect and loving plan that he has for you. Nothing. Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What about this temple you made of gold? God says, yeah, that's too weak. It's going to crumble. What about Rome? It's too weak. What about the American Constitution? That's going to fall apart. He says, but the church isn't going to endure forever. Even hell itself will not be able to overthrow it. What is unstoppable? It is the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is his people. It is the word of God. The church will not only survive this difficulty, it's going to thrive. The church is going to bring hope into a world that seems hopeless. The church is going to, to be an instrument of blessing and mending wherever there is sadness. No matter what legislation is passed or not, no matter what governments come and go, no matter what wars or persecutions come our way. But let's be even more personal because that seems somewhat distant. No matter what jobs are lost, no matter what families are broken, no, what, no matter what opportunities are missed, no matter what bones are broken, no matter what expectations are shattered, the gospel of the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed and becomes the biggest tree in the garden that bears fruit that is satisfying, that is life-giving. 
And so we saturate our life with the gospel. We saturate our life with the true gospel so that we can spot when a false gospel comes along. We saturate our thinking and our feeling and our behaving and everything we do, knowing that we are prone to wander from this truth, that we are easily led astray. And we say, God, unite me to this truth. Help me not to trust in anything but your perfect righteousness, your work on the cross for me. Instead of wasting our time trying to decipher current events, being some sign of the second coming, or complaining for how our interests are not pursued, we're to be faithful to the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus throughout the world. Let me close with this. Jesus says to his disciples, within your generation, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And I try to think about what I would do in that time. What, think about what you would do in that time. If, he, if, if we knew that Jesus said, within your generation, Tucson is going to be a pile of ash. I know what you're doing. You're moving. <laughs> That's exactly what we would all do. But what do the disciples do? They pray, they run out into the city, and they tell people the best news they've ever heard. And Peter, in his first sermon, he preaches this gospel, this good news of the kingdom of God, and 3,000 people are saved. A city is transformed. Jesus tells us, when I tell you that your city is broken, go into it and give your life to proclaiming the good news in every facet of your life. Stay in that city. Love the people of that city. Do not be led astray from the gospel. Saturate your life with it. Work. Preach practice as a disciple of Jesus in a city that is destined for destruction. Because there will be people in the city who need the mercy and grace of God. Work in the time and place that God has you, knowing that the end is near, but the kingdom of the, the gospel, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. It, it will not be thwarted against. It will not be destroyed. It will be complete. And so everything we do, every work we do in faith, every work we do to manifest the kingdom of God in our lives will last forever. It is a foretaste of the future kingdom. It is the good of God. Work in the time and place that God has you without worrying about what things will look like in the future. God has a purpose for you here and now. So you see, when we talk about these things, we tend to think about the specifics of the future, but God wants us to know what it looks like to be faithful now. That we should not be led astray. That we should not be surprised. And we should endure and persevere in Christ in all things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for telling us these things. And in our curiosity, we, we think that you haven't told us nearly enough but you have told us exactly what we need, exactly what we need to live a life faithful and pleasing to you. We thank you that you are coming back, that you came a first time, that you did not see our hopelessness and lead us, leave us to ourselves, but you rolled up your sleeves and rushed into our chaos, and you took on our sin, and you died a sinner's death. You bore our pain, and you rose again unto victory and new life. 
so that all who trust in you and repent of their sins would be united to you in a bond so tight that the gates of hell itself could not separate us. What great news. We thank you for this day. It is an imperfect day. It is a broken day. And yet we thank you for it because we know that you are working. We thank you for our city. We thank you for the people in our city. We thank you for our country and the innumerable blessings that we are afforded. I pray we would not cling to those temporal blessings, that we would not find our ultimate, our ultimate confidence in those things, that we would always pursue justice and equity and the well-being of others in our lives, but that we would always know that you comfort our souls in a way that they can't. So we cling to you. Pray for a faith that would endure. We pray for a wisdom and discernment that would keep us from being led astray in our hearts. And we pray that we would be wise and not being surprised and alarmed when things happen that are bad. And I pray that we would never give, that we'd never tire of showing and speaking of the good news of your kingdom that Jesus died for sinners. We love you, Jesus. We long for your coming. Keep us in your love until that time comes. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.